0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, chapter 2, episode 75. Last week, I summarized the last half of Genesis chapter 50, and then circled back to provide a summary of the first half of the entire book. When I stopped, Jacob was on his way to his uncle Laban's house in Haran to escape the wrath of his brother Esau. All of this found in chapter 28. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up the summary of Genesis at that point and working through the end of chapter 45. So, let's get started. In Genesis chapter 29, Jacob meets Rachel at a well, and he falls for her. He then strikes a deal with her father and his uncle, Laban, to serve him for seven years for her hand in marriage, After those several years pass, Laban tricks Jacob and instead gives him Leah, foreshadowing a strained relationship, but also reminiscent of the trickery used by Jacob to gain his father's blessing. You think he would have thought that one through. Later, Laban gives Jacob Rachel in exchange for another seven years' service. Leah then bears their sons Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. In Genesis chapter 30, Jacob marries Bilhah, who is Rachel's servant. Bilhah then bears two sons, Dan and Naphtali. Next, Jacob marries Zilpah, Leah's servant. Zilpha gives birth to two sons, Gad and Asher. Leah herself then has two sons, Issachar and Zebulun, and a daughter, Dinah. And have you noticed daughters only get mentioned when they're going to come up later in the narrative? Finally, Rachel gives birth to a son named Joseph. All of this time, Jacob is working for Laban and being paid with cattle and sheep. And what I find interesting is that it's Rachel and Jacob's first love that bears him a son last, the youngest, Joseph. Remember that. At the end of the chapter, we are told of how Laban is prospering, but only because of Jacob. And apparently, Jacob is also growing more wealthy. Laban notices this and gives Jacob what he considered to be the weaker of the flocks. But, Jacob invokes a countermeasure by breeding the stronger of his flocks together and becomes wealthier still, this time at Laban's expense. Which brings us to Genesis chapter 31. In this chapter, God commands Jacob to return to Canaan Fearing Laban, Jacob and his family depart secretly. Of course, Laban chases after him. When Laban finally catches up in the hill country of Gilead, the two men, father-in-law and son-in-law, resolve their differences and make a covenant of peace. Laban then blesses Jacob's descendants, and he returns to his home. Next, of course, is chapter 32. In anticipation of encountering his brother Esau, Jacob sends messengers bearing gifts to his brother, hoping to quell his wrath. The messengers return bearing what seems to be ominous news. Esau is on his way and bringing 400 men with him. Jacob makes a tactical decision and divides all he has into two separate groups and sends them in different directions, thinking that if one is attacked, at least the other will survive. He then prays. It is that night that Jacob wrestles with either God or an angel, depending on the interpretation. Also, his name is changed to Israel. Then, in chapter 33, Jacob and Esau finally meet again, and they reconcile their differences. Esau receives a gift from Jacob. After this encounter, Jacob settles in Canaan, specifically at a place called Succoth, where he builds an altar. In Genesis chapter 34, Shechem, a Hivite, rapes Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah. Remember when I told you to remember her name? This is why. Then, the Hivites attempt to arrange marriages with Jacob's family. Several of Jacob's sons avenged the wrong done on their sister by slaughtering all of the men in the city. Way to go, brothers. Jacob then chastises his sons for not thinking through the strategic implications of their vengeance. The story continues in chapter 35. God sends Jacob to Bethel, where he builds an altar. After he's done, God appears to him and reaffirms the promise that Jacob will be a great nation and that his name will be Israel. Jacob, well Israel, sets up a pillar and pours a drink offering. Then Rachel gives birth to Benjamin but she dies in the process. She is buried near Bethlehem. And keep in mind that Jacob has his favorite wife, Rachel, buried at Bethlehem, not at the family tomb, the cave purchased by Abraham so long before. At the end of the chapter, Isaac dies and is buried by both Jacob and Esau. Chapter 36 covers the descendants of Esau, who is also referred to as Edom, and thus are the forebearers of the Edomites. To support this, the narrative describes how Esau moved his family south from Canaan to Seir, the area that would later be known as Edom. Many paragraphs of this chapter are devoted to listing his wives and sons. Towards the end of the chapter is a paragraph that covers the history of the land prior to a king becoming anointed in Israel. Next is chapter 37. This chapter is a turning point in the history of the Old Testament. So, while I normally would spend just a few sentences summarizing the chapter, I'll dive a little deeper into this part of the Genesis narrative. Joseph was Jacob-slash-Israel's favorite son. Because of this, Jacob gave his son a nice, multicolored coat. The whole family then settles in the land of Canaan, probably while Joseph was a teenager. Joseph has a dream that his brother's sheaves of grain bowed to his. And unfortunately, he made the mistake of relaying this dream to his brothers. And that wasn't the end of it. He has another dream. This one where the sun, moon, and eleven stars bow to him. And this causes his brothers to be even more jealous of him. But his father didn't overreact. The brothers thought that Joseph felt he was superior to them. So, this assumed superiority, along with them apparently knowing he was dad's favorite, caused much jealousy, to the point that his brothers began to plot his demise. The brothers did not wait too long to spring into action. After his brothers had left one day, Jacob asked Joseph to travel to where they were herding his sheep and check in on everyone. Of course he did as his father asked. His brothers saw him coming and conspired for the final time. All but two wanted him dead, and it was Reuben and Judah, who did not wish for him to actually die, at least directly in their hands. They decided to grab Joseph and to throw him into an empty well. Then they sat down for dinner. Not long after that, the brothers looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, on their way to Egypt. Then Judah came up with the idea of selling him to the caravan as a slave, and they all went along with it. After he was sold, they tore up his coat, soaked it in blood, and let Jacob assume that Joseph had been devoured by a wild animal. In the meantime, Joseph is taken to Egypt, where he is sold as a slave to the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Chapter 38 is a bit of an aside from the Joseph narrative. In this chapter is a rather seedy tale that you should read if you're interested. Judah, Jacob's fourth son, finds a wife for himself in the area around Abdullah. She bears him three sons. Judah then finds a wife for his firstborn, a son named Ir. The wife Judah found for his son was named Tamar. Not too long after they wed, Eir dies because he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Then Judah explains to his second son, a lad named Onan, that he must follow the laws of Leveret marriage and marry her. In accordance with these laws, their firstborn son will be named for the deceased brother. That way, the name of the deceased brother will be kept alive. So, Onan marries her but manages to find a way to keep his bride from getting pregnant. The details are in the text. Go find it. His motivation, apparently, is that he did not care for his deceased brother's name to live on. And this too was displeasing to God, so he too was struck dead. Judah was at his wits' end, as having lost his two oldest sons and now having a twice-widowed daughter-in-law to support. So, he did the culturally acceptable thing and sent her back to her father's house. Judah told her that she should live with her family until his youngest son, a lucky kid named Sela, was old enough to take Tamar as his wife. Then, Judah's unnamed wife dies, and he continues to run the family's herding business. After an appropriate period of mourning, he travels to Timnah to check on his sheep shearers. Tamar disguises herself, and she and Judah get to know each other really well. And Judah wasn't completely innocent, as he agreed to pay for the encounter. Tamar ends up pregnant, and Judah, not knowing that she was the disguised woman he had previously met, accuses her of being a harlot. Well, that's the word that the King James uses— The other versions I use for this podcast use a more modern word. Back to the text. Judah is furious and wants Tamar executed. But, as she's dragged out, she reveals to everyone who the father of the child is and provides the BC version of proof. Judah's guilty conscience weighs on him, and he relents and she lives. She gives birth to twin boys who would be named Perez and Zira, who said the Bible was boring. And that's the end of that chapter. After that quick interlude, chapter 39 gets us back to Joseph's story, essentially when he arrives in Egypt. Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites. Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of his household, and Joseph runs it so well that Potiphar's wealth increases as his worries decrease. The perfect combination and all because God was with Joseph. Then, Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph of a terrible crime, and he was thrown into prison as a result. But God was still with him, and the jailer recognized this. As a result, Joseph, the prisoner himself, was put in charge of all of the other prisoners. Which brings me to Genesis chapter 40. Here, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker were also sent to the same prison as Joseph. While they are in prison, the captain of the guard apparently made Joseph their servant. It was while these two royal servants were in the same facility as Joseph that he interpreted their dreams. And a few days later, and in line with Joseph's interpretation of their dreams, The cupbearer was restored to Pharaoh's court, and the baker, well, he was hanged. And Joseph, probably much to his extreme disappointment, was forgotten about. Chapter 41 is another pivotal moment in the Old Testament narrative. Two years have passed, and Pharaoh has dreams that no one could interpret. It was only then that the royal cupbearer remembers Joseph. Thanks, dude. Pharaoh then describes his dreams to Joseph. Joseph explains that God was warning Pharaoh about an impending famine that will occur after several years of bountiful harvest. Pharaoh recognizes that God is leading Joseph and makes him his, meaning Pharaoh's, second-in-command. Pharaoh also gives him one of his servant's daughters as a wife. Joseph devises a plan to store large amounts of food to prepare the country for the impending famine. During the seven years of plentiful harvest, Joseph worked diligently to ensure that the excess grain was stored away. His family life was prospering, as his wife gives birth to two sons. And, just as Joseph had indirectly predicted, the famine did come, and when it did, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of selling the grain back to the Egyptian people. It was apparently a regional famine, maybe even worldwide as Egypt's neighbors were less prepared and sought to buy the Egyptian grain, which is the reason for the events of the next chapter. In chapter 42, we are told that the famine is impacting Canaan, where Jacob and his remaining sons and their families live. And, unlike Joseph, Jacob and his sons did not see this coming and had not stored away enough grain to survive the downturn. The dismal situation leads Jacob to send all of his sons, except for Benjamin, to Egypt to search for food. The traveling brothers arrive in Egypt and bow down before Joseph. Sheaves of grain, anyone? Sun, moon, and stars, maybe? Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they do not recognize him. Joseph also notices that his only full brother, Benjamin, is not part of the group. But he does learn that his brother is still alive. So, he devises a plan to be reunited with him. And he accuses his half-brothers of being spies and imprisons them for three days. After this, he visits them and then tells his brothers that they must depart and retrieve Benjamin. But they must leave one brother behind as a sort of bond. Joseph picks out Simeon to remain behind as collateral to ensure they return with Benjamin. He then gives the remaining brothers the grain they sought and enough other provisions for the return journey. Secretly, without the brothers noticing, he returned their money, too. After the brothers had left, and while still on their return journey to Canaan, one unidentified brother notices that the money they thought they had paid for the grain has been returned. And they are all horrified, thinking this was another part of God's punishment. They make it back to Jacob and tell their father of the journey, relaying how they had been accused of spying and how Simeon was left behind to ensure that Benjamin was brought to Egypt. The brothers also mention that when Benjamin is presented to the Egyptian lord, Simeon will be released and they will be allowed to trade in Egyptian territory. As they unpack, they each discover their individual bags of money, and Jacob caught sight of this too, and their hearts sunk a little more. The brothers were apparently insistent on returning to Egypt with Benjamin in tow and doing this immediately, but Jacob wasn't going to risk losing another son. In his mind, Joseph was dead, and Simeon, well, he was probably as good as dead. It was after this that Reuben spoke up. He told his father that if he would allow him to take Benjamin to Egypt and he were not to return with the young son safe and sound, then Jacob could kill Reuben's two sons, more bond, in return for actions. In the end, Jacob does not allow Benjamin to journey to Egypt. Which brings me to Genesis chapter 43. Apparently, some time passes between 42 and 43, as Jacob's family has consumed all of the grain previously purchased, well, brought back from Egypt. And the famine persists in Canaan. Jacob once again instructs his son to go to Egypt to buy more food. Judah reminds Jacob that the ruler of Egypt had warned them that there would be no more food if Benjamin does not accompany them on the trip. Judah promises his own life in protection of Benjamin. In the end, Jacob agrees. At the end of the chapter, Jacob instructs his sons to carry presents for the leader, presumably to gain his goodwill. Also, Jacob instructs his sons to take double the money so that they could pay for the grain received on the first trip, as well as that grain that they were going to purchase on this expedition. The sons did as their father instructed, and all of them, including Benjamin this time, made their way to Egypt, yet again to stand in front of Joseph. When they arrive in Egypt, Joseph invited them to his house where he had a servant slaughter an unspecified animal for lunch. As you would expect, the brothers wondered why this Egyptian lord would go to the trouble of inviting them to his house. They speculate that the invitation was related to what they thought was their failure to pay for the grain on their last visit. In their mind, they thought they would be arrested and then be made Joseph's slaves. So they beat Joseph to the punch. As soon as they arrived at Joseph's house, they spoke with his steward and fessed up about the found bags of money. The steward then tells the brothers that they did pay for the grain on their first trip, and it must have been their god that put the money bags back in their sacks. They had nothing to worry about. Shortly after this exchange... The steward had Simeon brought out to them. Joseph arrives, and his brothers give him the gifts. Joseph inquires about their father, learning that he was still alive and well. He then sees his brother Benjamin, and hurries from the room to a private room where he wept for a bit. He then gathered himself, washed his face, and returned to the dining hall where they all ate. Next, of course, is chapter 44. Apparently, the brothers depart the day after the lunch. Joseph has his servant fill the brothers' bags with food and returns their money, again. He then asks his servant to place his personal silver cup in Benjamin's bag. A setup. Joseph did not let them get far before implementing the next step of his plan. He sent his steward after his brothers, who then accused them of stealing his silver cup. When the servant catches up with the brothers, they are appalled at the accusation of theft, to the point that they offer to all become slaves if the cup is found. The steward agrees that the thief should become Joseph's slave, but the other brothers would go free. A bag search proceeds, and the cup is found in Benjamin's bag. All of the brothers then return to the Egyptian city and are brought to Joseph's house. This time, Judah speaks up and tells Joseph that they are all willing to become his slaves. Joseph doesn't want his stepbrothers to remain, only Benjamin. Judah, thinking back on the promise he had made to his father, pleads with Joseph in a lengthy speech that ends the chapter. Chapter 45 begins immediately following Judah's speech. Apparently, Judah's speech resonates with Joseph as he clears the room of everyone except his brothers. Overcome with emotion, he reveals himself to his brothers, who are shocked. And Joseph asked if his father is still alive. His brothers didn't answer, standing there in disbelief. Joseph asked them to come closer He then explains everything that has happened, recounting how he thinks their selling him to slavery was all part of God's plan so that they could be delivered from the famine. He then tells his brothers to go get their father and families and bring them all down to Egypt. His plan, of course, has Pharaoh's approval, who allows Joseph to settle his extended family in some of the best Egyptian land, specifically Goshen. Joseph sends his brothers back to Canaan to retrieve their father, also sending more than enough provisions for the journey. The brothers make it back to Canaan and inform the stunned Jacob of their thought-dead brother's fortunes. Oh, to be a fly on that wall. The chapter ends with Jacob, of course, demanding to be taken to his son immediately, wanting to embrace his once-thought-dead, now known to be alive son, before he dies himself which gets me to the end of the chapter and probably a good stopping point. Join me next week when I'll summarize the remainder of Genesis and set the stage for the book of Exodus. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find it. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe. You'll get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.